Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for March 1st, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including the Wonder Woman 2 villain casting, Bright is Not for Critics, apparently, a new Batman board game, Castle Rock casting, War Games trailer, a new director for Black Hole, uh, new details on Quentin Tarantino's next film, and a new uh, Westworld Season 2 details, as well as a new release date for Avengers Infinity War. Uh, this is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Sorda, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, before we get into today's episode, uh, yesterday on the podcast, uh, we uh, the idea came up of, you know, what would they call a sequel to Solo, a Star Wars story? And uh, we couldn't come up with a good suggestion, so I asked readers if, if they could, if they had anything better than we had to email us at peter at slash com, And we got a couple, we got actually a lot of entries. <laughs> And more more emails than we ever had before. I'm going to read just a, a few of them for you. Uh, Jake in Salt Lake suggested Deuce, a Star Wars story. Um, Greg and David K both had came to the same conclusion. They they wanted Duo, a Star Wars story, where it, it, it is about uh, Han and Chewie. And they suggest that the, that the third film in the series could be called Trio, a Star Wars story. Uh, George D suggests... Solo, the Star Wars story continues, uh, which he spelled solo with two I's or two L's, I mean, which could be like, you know, one of those t- titles for a movie that has like the the two in the title. I'm not sure. Maybe it, it could just be a typo. Uh, Rick T suggested Solo and Chewie is Star Wars story slash bromance. Elias suggested Lando. Um, guys, which out of those titles do you think is the best title. Ben. Like duo, I think. <laughs> that duo? One, yeah, yeah. Uh, solo, duo, it's got a nice flow to it, right? And then Trio is the third film. Yeah, that, that would be nice, I think. Um, I'm not sure they're going to do a sequel to this uh, to this um, film, but um, 
Uh, also, we did uh, rag on F. Gary Gray quite a bit, saying we, we didn't really have faith in him as a comedy, a director of comedies. Uh, Bobby J. wrote in to point out that F. Gary Gray also directed the original Friday movie, uh, which is a comedy people forget he directed. And uh, yeah, we did, we did not mention that. Um, but uh, let's uh, go into the news. I was just talking about Solo, a Star Wars story, one of the films coming out in May 2018, uh, as well as uh, Deadpool and uh, Marvel's Avengers Infinity War. But, oh, not anymore. Uh, right before we went on the air, Marvel surprised us with a surprise release date announcement. Brad, what do we know? Uh, yeah, so out of nowhere on Twitter, Marvel Studios did one of their, you know, normal little tweets trying to hype people up about Avengers Infinity War. They said, on a scale of 1 to infinity, how excited are you to see Avengers Infinity War on May 4th? And Robert Downey Jr. responded, any chance I could see it earlier? And he was like, anything, Marvel was like, anything for you, Mr. Stark, how's April 27th? And Robert Downey Jr. asked if he could see it with friends, and Marvel was all like, oh, you mean like some of the Avengers? And he was like, no, the whole world. And they were like, you got it. So now Avengers Infinity War comes out on April 27th, a whole week earlier for us to enjoy it. I love that Disney's decision-making uh, about release dates is all done on Twitter and based on a, a you know a, the, the response from one of their actors. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Disney is a brave, bold company. They're pushing in new directions every day. So I think making haphazard decisions on Twitter is probably just the next big thing that everyone needs to jump on the bandwagon for. Uh, because this probably needs – it doesn't need to be spelled out, but I will spell it out. I'm being sarcastic, and uh, this is definitely just a marketing gimmick. Obviously, they, 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 they Yeah, they, they planned this in advance. Uh, so, Brad, I, I, I was going to ask you, why do you think they moved Infinity War a week earlier? Well – I mean, as movie fans, we all know that Blockbuster Summer is packed to the gills with tons of movies. There are two or three major releases hitting every single weekend. And even though Avengers Infinity War is pretty much guaranteed to win that first weekend, uh, I'm willing to bet Disney wants uh, an early jumpstart on Blockbuster crowds and an extra week to rake in some extra box office money. Uh, as you said before, May is going to see the release of Deadpool 2 and Solo A Star Wars Story. Those are going to be two big movies that come out in two to three weeks after Avengers Infinity War. If it comes out a week earlier, that's a whole extra week where they don't really have much competition whatsoever to take away from the Infinity War box office. So they can rake in some extra money, start the buzz earlier. And on top of that, they're probably looking to capitalize on the hype that's still pushing forward from Black Panther. Um, it's, that, it's going into its third weekend. It'll probably still uh, be a pretty big deal even as we get closer to the end of April, so riding that wave of buzz, um, especially since a big part of Infinity War takes place in Wakanda, only makes sense for them to try and uh, ride that wave a little bit. So wait, so they're moving to April now, April 27th. What are they going up against? On April 27th? Yes. Well, they've got some pretty big heavy hitters going up against them. Uh, there's an animated movie called Animal Crackers, which I don't even know what it is, so it's probably a big deal. Um, there's a, a Dean Devlin-directed crime thriller called Bad Samaritan, uh, a Paula Patton thriller called Traffic, and then Amy Schumer's comedy I Feel Pretty, which will probably be a pretty decent uh, competitor as far as counter-programming is concerned. Um, and then there's a little indie drama called Disobedience starring Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weisz. 
and the um, L.A. riots drama Kings, and then something that we don't really know what it is, but it's called Selfie Dad. Uh, and apparently that also comes out that weekend. Sounds dirty to me. <laughs> I, I know Chris is really excited but for Selfie Dad. Um, yeah, I already bought my tickets. <laughs> but it sounds like basically there was no competition that weekend, so Marvel decided or Disney decided to move their Marvel film one week earlier. Um, but uh, let's move on in the news. Last night, after the slash film offices closed, uh, news broke out that Kirsten Wig is in talks for the role of the villain in Wonder Woman two. Chris, you wrote it up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so yeah, this news broke a little late last night that uh, they're looking for they're looking at Kristen Wiig to play the character Cheetah in Wonder Woman two. Um, uh, she's just in talks right now. It's not official. Uh, I personally hope it does become official because I want to see this. I want to see Kristen Wiig in a big superhero movie what, what, because, what is that role do we know anything about that character in in the comic books uh that character has been around for a long time it's it changes from era to era uh, there's been several different cheetahs some of them are just people who wear a costume and some of them are people who are have been genetically altered to be you know to look like you know half human half cheetahs so i'm not sure which version the film is going to go for but we'll see but um yeah, so that's that's where it is right now. She's currently in talks. Kristen Wiig seems like such an unlikely choice for a superhero villain role. Uh, Brad, I know you're a fan of Wig. Uh, do you think this is an unlikely choice? You know, it seems like it at first, for sure. Um, but Kristen Wiig has has some pretty solid performances that aren't straight up comedic performances. Uh, one of my favorite roles of hers is undoubtedly the role she has in Skeleton Twins, which teamed her up with uh, her fellow SNL cast member, Bill Hader. Uh, it's a great indie dramedy. She, do- she does some fantastic work in it, both comedically and dramatically. Um, she's also She also had a, a key small role in The Martian. Uh, she's done a little bit of you know some more odder uh, indie movies like Nasty Baby. So she's she's got range for sure. And you know, a lot of people are freaking out about this because they just think that Kristen Wiig's just going to be goofy and she's totally wrong for it. But sometimes the whole point of taking on roles like this is to subvert expectations and to for an actor to, like, really stretch their legs and show that they can do something else. And, you know, it's it basically just reminds me of the same kind of reaction people had when Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker. You know, everyone was so against it, uh, didn't think that he would be able to pull it off, and he turned that around. And you know, no one's expecting, you know, necessarily to for Kristen Wiig to turn in, you know, one of the best villain performances of all time, like Heath Ledger ended up doing. But at the very least, you know, you got to give her a chance to show what she can do, and at least wait until you see some footage before you start completely dismissing her performance. Yeah, let's think about it this way: it can't be worse than the villain in Wonder Woman one, right? I mean, uh, I think the the very end uh, that yeah the villain you know once it sort of took its true form I think you're onto something there Peter but for the rest of it I think the the villain uh, in in the first Wonder Woman was pretty good but yeah 
Okay, agree to disagree there. Uh, let's move on to a Kickstarter that is on Kickstarter right now. Uh, this uh, game, Batman Gotham City Chronicles, launched two days ago and is already up to $2.3 million on Kickstarter. Um, I'm a big tabletop gamer. I know uh, Jacob Hall, who is on vacation right now, is also a tabletop gamer. But I wrote this up for the site uh, just because I wanted to make people aware of it. Uh, I know... Um, uh, not everybody listening to this podcast or reading the site are probably tabletop gamers, but um, the uh, you know this is a Batman game, so you know it has that tie into comic books and movies, and it's based on uh, all the classic uh, Batman comic books. It's like uh, sculpt, like it's it's a miniature game, so it's a lot of minis and sculpts based on like you know Jim Lee's classic artwork and uh, all the all, all the classic uh, Batman storylines. There's like a ton of scenarios. There's a ton of maps a ton of it just looks like a really cool game i have a game called conan which is made by the same company and they're basically they basically skinned conan into this uh essentially they're using the same game system and that game system is incredible i love it uh even though i have no connection to conan uh itself that's probably the only downside to that game for me so it's a no-brainer to back uh batman uh, Gotham City Chronicles, and it's it, it's insane that it's making so much money, but it's also um, uh, it's it's a game that's not going to be sold in stores, so you have to back it on Kickstarter because basically this company, uh, not to get into the full dynamic of things, but basically when you sell something in a store, you know the store makes fifty percent, uh, selling it to the store, the distributor makes fifty percent, uh, you know the 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 company that makes the the game they upcharge it fifty percent how much it cost, so basically if they were going to sell this in stores, it would be like. $400 or something, but they're selling on Kickstarter for, I think, 140 bucks, and there's a bunch of expansions and stuff. Uh, you know, if, if you like tabletop games, getting around the table with your friends, uh, I, I highly recommend this. Check it out. Um, but let's move on from tabletop to uh, Hulu. Hulu's uh, new Stephen King series, Castle Rock, has added another member of their cast, and this member is also another star of the movie it ben what do we know yes actor chosen jacobs who portrayed the young mike hanlon in andy muschietti's uh movie adaptation of it that came out last year has been added to the cast of castle rock and castle rock is the upcoming original series that's going to be airing on hulu jj abrams is producing it and it's set in the stephen king multiverse it's a psychological horror series uh, we don't really know much about the show, as with anything involving J.J. Abrams, it's all been kept under lock and key for the most part. And we do know that it, it's set inside the the city, the town of Castle Rock, which is a fictional main town that has featured pretty prominently in a lot of his uh, literary works. And uh, yeah, Chosen Jacobs is going to be playing uh, a recurring role as Wendell Deaver, who is the son of Andre Holland's Henry Deaver, who is like one of the main characters in the show, and he is a lawyer, and uh, Sissy Spacek is going to be playing his adopted mother, Ruth. Um, so there's a, a little bit of a, a family connection with Chosen Jacob's character. We don't really know any details about exactly how he's going to factor into the story, because like I said, it's all been pretty um, pretty hush-hush over there. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Peter, this is the second uh, actor from the It movie to get involved with Castle Rock. The first was Bill Skarsgård, who played 
the clown Pennywise, and he's playing a death row inmate at Shawshank Prison who has a connection to uh, Andre Holland's Henry Deaver character. It does seem strange that they are kind of cribbing their cast from the It feature film. I, I feel like, you know, oftentimes I hear, you know, people in Hollywood be like, you know, oh, we can't cast this guy because he was in the Marvel movie and we're casting the DC film. And, and like, it, it just seems like, you know, and It is coming out at the same time, you know, Castle Rock is coming out. Uh, it just seems weird. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like Steven, they're really like instead of I think you're right. I think there's definitely that mentality there um, in, in Hollywood projects in general. But I feel like because this one is set in the Stephen King multiverse, they're really just leaning into pulling in as many people from King projects as they can. I mean, I mentioned Sissy Spacek and she starred in the movie version of Carrie that came out in the 80s. So um, that's, you know, they're they're playing different characters in this show uh, or so we think unless this whole thing is like this massive misdirect and they're all just like somehow playing the same characters that they did uh, in these movies. But that seems like a little too elaborate even for J.J. Abrams. Yeah, that, that would be crazy. Uh, let's move on to our next story. Uh, the trailer for the new War Games reboot hit the web uh we're gonna give our reaction but chris can you tell us a little bit about this war games reboot before we we get into it yeah so this isn't like a uh your standard sort of movie reboot this is a interactive uh series that's gonna launch on mobile and voodoo and stuff like that where the viewer gets to it's sort of like a choose your own adventure thing where you interact with the story and you get to make decisions along with as the story unfolds. And it's of course inspired by, you know, the original film with Matthew Broderick where he hacks into a supercomputer and almost starts world war three. So it's, it's going off of that same basic premise, but updating it for the modern digital age, which you can tell because the title has a hashtag in it. (laughs) And what is that hashtag? It is. It's hashtag war games, all okay, one word. Yeah. So that's that's the full title. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but this 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 new version is going to be interactive, I guess. Yes. Yeah. It's it's not like you know it's not like a regular show where you you just kick back and watch it. You you get to um you know interact with the show as it's unfolding. Okay. Now I uh, I'm a fan of the original war games. Um, you know, it was like probably one of the first movie about hackers that I ever saw. And I, I was actually, you know, I was skeptical of the show. But after seeing this trailer, I'm totally sold. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm not totally sold. This, this trailer <laughs> looks so horrible. This looks like, um, okay, I know, you know, we're living in an age of streaming where like, you know, YouTube greenlights, a Karate Kid show, and like we don't bat an eye. But, you know, five, ten years ago, when you said the word web series, you thought of, you know, horribly produced, like, things in one room, like Lonely Girl 15 and whatever. This looks like that. Am I wrong? I mean, yeah, it's a – I think, Peter, this is probably like a generational gap. Um, This is one of those things that I feel like is going to – be uh, more experimental than a lot of stuff that we've seen, but also uh, definitely appeal to a younger crowd than, you know, the people like us who grew up with like traditional media. Um, and I think that interactivity is kind of a cool thing. I, I mean, yes, the the look and like the visual aesthetic of the show is not super impressive, at least from this trailer. Um, but I think the concepts that Chris is talking about, the idea of being able to switch between video feeds and 
and um, you know the the show like learns from your choices and all that kind of stuff. It seems a little bit more uh, advanced than even what Steven Soderbergh was just doing with that show Mosaic, where he released an app and you were able to sort of uh, choose in what order you wanted to watch different parts of the story. Um, this seems like it's it's even more you know leaning even further into that choose your own adventure territory. And I feel like you know the the older crowd might not be into this, but it could be the kind of thing that could mix things up for uh, the younger generation. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being hey, naive or overly optimistic. I'm all for interactive storytelling and choose your own adventure, but why does it all have to come in the form of a webcam? Uh, Brad, did you watch this trailer? Yeah, I mean it's it's whatever like. The idea is kind of innovative, but at the same time, like it, it, it feels like a video game mixed with a movie, and I'd really just rather just do one or the other, given the choice. You know, like when I sit down for a movie, I want to watch a story unfold. I don't want to have to to work to watch the story unfold. If I wanted to do that, I would go play a video game, which, in which case, I'm in control of everything for the most part. So, I I, I can take it or leave it. <laughs> The other thing is, Ben, you mentioned this is for like a, a different generation uh, than us. Does that generation even know war games? I don't. Uh, I don't think they probably, probably ever. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I don't think so. But, um, but you know, as Chris mentioned, it, it doesn't seem to. It basically just sort of takes the the title and the loose concept, right? Like if yeah. Matthew Broderick was reprising his role and he had like, you know, if it was like a legacy sequel kind of thing, uh, I think that would be maybe the wrong way to go about it. So it seems like they're just, you know, forgetting and they're basically just like uh, accepting the idea that their core audience is probably going to have no idea what the hell the original War Games was. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if a tween nowadays saw War Games, if it would even make sense, because Matthew Broderick's, like, putting his, like, landline, the headset of his landline telephone on, like, a thing that was a modem, like a 12-baud modem at the time. <laughs> uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts on War Games? I will not be watching this. That's my thought. So, and, and Chris, <laughs> Good... Chris watches a lot of stuff. I was going to say I crap, just... but I was going to say stuff. Yes, I, I, just, I don't have the patience for stuff like this. Like, I haven't even watched but, Mosaic Chris is yet. still watching American Crime Story. That that tells you his patience. <laughs> I mean, I love Steven Soderbergh, and I have yet to give Mosaic a try just because I don't want to – I don't feel like interacting with stuff. I just want to watch it. Just let me watch it. I don't want to play around with it, but that's yeah. me. No. I guess it's worth mentioning really quickly that um, Mosaic actually did air as like a, a continuous narrative on HBO separate from the app experience. So if you want to check that out without doing any of the quote unquote work, you can just watch that. Um, I wonder yeah, if or but it's like do something similar, but I don't know. I'm like, I'm so obsessive compulsive that I can't watch it because if I do, I'm going to be like, ugh. then I got to go watch the app stuff because I know it's out there. Like my mind <laughs> won't let me. But uh, so that's why I haven't started it yet. Um, okay, let's move on to Bright, uh, one of the the big films that Netflix greenlit and released. It was not met uh, with good reviews from critics or even normal audiences, I don't think. Uh, but uh, one of the stars is uh, coming out against the backlash saying the film was not made for critics. It was made for fans. Brad, what do we know? Well, we know that critics are just grumpy scumbags who want nothing more than to tear down every single movie that comes out unless they're getting a paycheck from Marvel. So Joel Edgerton's making a lot of sense here. 
No, this is so frustrating to me. This argument comes around like once a month, and it's just getting old. Well, well before this, you go off on it, tell me what Joel said. I'm I'm going to. I'm going to. So, uh, Joel Edgerton is doing press for Red Sparrow right now. He's in um, the new Jennifer Lawrence movie. Uh, and he was asked about the, the critical reception for Bright, which was not very good. Uh, it has a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, but it has an audience score of 85%. And Edgerton's response to that was, he said, I think there was a little bit of extra critical hate towards it because it's changing the landscape of the movie business. But I think Bright is maybe a movie that needs to be reviewed by public opinion rather than viewed through the highbrow prism of film criticism. And that's just ridiculous. (laughs) Like, to think that critics have the mind of a studio executive where they're like, well, this is changing the normal theatrical window and how this works and da-da-da-da-da. If critics were like that, we wouldn't have gotten VCRs when VHS became a big deal. We wouldn't have switched to DVDs. We wouldn't have Netflix subscriptions. No critic in their right mind is against the changing landscape of of the movie business. We just want good movies. And no no critic goes out into the world wanting to hate a movie. It would have been awesome if Bright was a great movie. Unfortunately, it wasn't. And just and it should also fact- be mentioned that critics don't just like highbrow entertainment. Like Black Panther is in theaters now. It's one of the highest rated films on Rotten Tomatoes. And, uh, you know, that is a comic book movie. No, there, I mean, that's the thing is like he, it, it seems like there's this separation between what general audiences enjoy and what critics enjoy. And sometimes that can be true based on the fact that some some critics have just seen more movies than general audiences have, and so they, they, they get more bored if a story is derivative, things like that. But that's not necessarily a highbrow thing. And it's not as if there's always this, you know, separation between what critics enjoy and what fans enjoy. There's almost all the time they their perceptions line up. It's only when they don't that it gets publicized and everyone goes crazy and everyone says, oh, critics are all out of touch. Like, there's some kind of hive mind that keeps us all connected and hating the things that normal people love. So it's just, you know, it, it's whatever at this point, and it, people can keep using the, oh, it's for fans, it's for critics kind of things, but critics are fans. If someone doesn't like your movie, just make a better one next time. Yeah, I, I think when people that aren't critics, you know, imagine, you know, when they think of critic, they think of Roger Ebert or they think of uh, the animated series The Critic, uh, the character from that. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, I know, you know, hundreds of critics, and I know hundreds of you know, normal general public people. And the only difference between critics and those, pe- the, the, the general public people are two things. Critics have see a lot more film. So thus, you know, what you said might get tired of more derivative stuff and, uh, might have a larger palette, uh, for films. Uh, and number two, that they are able to communicate their feelings in a film probably better than general public. Probably. Um, but aside from that, I know critics that have horrible taste in movies. I know critics that have great taste in movies. I have, I know general public people that, you know, friends of mine that have great taste in movies. I have, I have friends of mine that have the worst taste in movies and it's, it's, it's stupid to draw this line. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, it's a, it's a silly argument. I'm a little disappointed to hear it come from. Joel Edgerton, because he's actually someone uh, whose career I've enjoyed for the most part. And uh, he directed a really good movie. It was called The Gift. It was a really surprisingly good horror movie. And it's kind of disappointing to see him adopt this 
really wrong-headed approach. I mean, you know, people who are film critics, they're film critics because they love movies. Like, no one gets into film criticism because they don't like movies. That would be insane. So it's just, it's a really backwards thought. I, I wish it would stop. Yeah, it's not like film critics get into criti- film criticism because they're like, oh, I'm a good writer. What could I get a job writing about? Oh, movies. It's it's beca- it's usually because of like you, Chris. You know, you love seeing movies, so why not? Uh, I mean, and, and you have a talent for writing, so why not make that your life so you can watch more of what you love to do? But exactly, uh, yeah. I mean, and you know, no one gets into film criticism for uh, you know the fame. Believe me, there's there's no money really in film criticism. You do it because you love to do it, and to think otherwise is just silly. And it should be mentioned that you know IMDb. Uh, which has a, a, a huge user base. There's been over 114,000 ratings for the film Bright. Has a, a rating of 6.4, which is gener- anything below a 7 or 7.5 on IMDb, I think, is generally not good. Um, so I, I don't think, it, 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 Joel, if you're making this film for the fans, I think you did a bad job. <laughs> I think that's the bottom line. I think it, it's a bad movie. But um, let's move on to uh, Black Hole, a comic book that has been in uh, Hollywood's been trying to turn into a movie for quite some time. I know David Fincher was working on it way back when we might finally have a director to make this movie. Ben, what do we know? Yes. So uh, Rick Famuyiwa, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's the guy who directed Dope, which uh, played at Sundance a few years ago. And it was uh, an indie hit that people seem to really like. Um, He has signed on to write and direct Black Hole, which is based on this acclaimed graphic novel by Charles Burns. It's set in the 1970s. It's about a group of teenagers who contract a mysterious uh, sexually transmitted disease that causes all sorts of weird body mutations. And um, it it really gets into uh, sexual awakening and high school alienation. It taps into a lot of these themes. And um, the graphic novel uh, or the comic series won a bunch of awards. And um, as you said, Peter Hollywood has been really trying to make this into a a film for a long time. I think in 2005, the director of The Hills Have Eyes remake was attached to direct it. And then uh, Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery, who's the guy who co-wrote Pulp Fiction with Quentin Tarantino, uh, started working on a script. And then they ended up falling off. Uh, David Fincher came on and said he was going to make it. And then he ended up leaving. So yes, uh, Rick Famuyiwa is the latest person to uh, to come on board this film, and I think uh, it, it you know it seems like he's going to be the guy to to make it happen. But you know, like we said, there have been so many people that have come and gone. It's hard to uh, to get super invested in this until you know you start seeing production photos and stills and trailers and stuff like that. Um, otherwise, this project could just be one of those that sort of uh, floats around in development hell for years. Yeah, and the story isn't something that's exactly easy to adapt to a live-action film. Uh, I know I read this a long time ago, and it's, it's, it's you know, far from, you know, mainstream. Uh, have any of you read Black Hole? I have, actually. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very good, and if done right, it could make a uh, upsetting film. So I hope it gets done right. We'll see. 
Okay, let's move on to another story that broke last night after Slash Home Offices closed. Uh, Chris stuck around uh, in the uh, in the office with all the, the lights out behind a lit screen to uh, file this. And it, it is uh, new news on Quentin Tarantino's next film. Chris, what do we know? Yeah, so for the longest time, everyone has been referring to Quentin Tarantino's next film as Quentin Tarantino's Manson family movie because it has something to do with the Manson family. So last night, two bits of information broke. One is that the film finally has a title, and that title is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And two is that Brad Pitt has now officially joined the cast. So the cast is now currently Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um we learned previously that Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he's an uh, like an aging Western star who's still struggling to make it in Hollywood after his glory days have ended. And Brad Pitt is playing his longtime uh, stunt double and friend. And we also learned now that the plot basically revolves around the fact that, you know, DiCaprio's character is struggling in Hollywood and he also happens to be next door neighbors with Sharon Tate. Uh, and Sharon Tate, of course, was an actress who was murdered by the Manson family. And she was married to Roman Polanski, who is also apparently going to be a character in the film. You know, I, I love this title, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this as casting ramps up. Um, but let's move on to our last and final story. And that is Westworld Season 2. Entertainment Weekly has done this kind of cover story on the upcoming season, and we're learning a bit more about the second season. So if you have not seen Westworld Season 1 or don't want to know anything about Westworld Season 2, you can you know, turn away now. Brad, what, do, what did we find out today? Yeah, so there wasn't any, uh, weren't any huge revelations or anything like that, but since it's Entertainment Weekly's cover story, they're releasing some little tidbits here and there. And it's basically... Uh, executive producers and showrunners Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan talking about how the the scope of the series is going to expand and where we're going to uh, join the the series once the second season begins. And it seems like it uh, mostly picks up after the events of the the first season almost immediately, um, since the hosts are now revolting. Uh, we'll see how that affects the uh, the park, um, but it sounds like. It's not going to be a full-on revolution where all of the the hosts are trying to get revenge and kill as many humans as they can, um, because they. Lisa Joy points out that the question for this season will kind of be, uh, quote, "How far are you willing to go until you become a reflection of the evil you're trying to fight?" So maybe some of the hosts aren't necessarily ready to be all gung ho about killing those who were controlling them before. We know that one of the hosts is a little bit more concerned with finding her daughter, and that's Tandy Newton's character, Maeve. Uh, she was looking to leave the park at the end of the first season. Um, so we'll see how that plays out in, in the second season as well. Um, but the hosts aren't the only ones who have a significant role, because as we know, the man in black is still kicking around. And apparently he has some kind of new mission in the park. They wouldn't come out and say what that mission is, um, but... In the first season, he was all about trying to find the next level of the game. And apparently this new season has some kind of, quote, an all-new Rubik's Cube narrative puzzle box for viewers to attempt to solve. Uh, we'll see if that ends up being tied to the game um, that Ed Harris has been trying to play or if it's something completely new. 
Uh, as we know, there was uh, plenty of interesting twists and turns in the first season, especially with the narrative structure and how that played out, even though a lot of fans figured it out before uh, the, the reveal came around. So it'll be interesting to see how, if Westworld can keep the momentum going from the first season and deliver something that's just as uh, captivating. And I, I love what Jeffrey Wright says uh, about how the scale of season two is just nuts. Uh, he says literally right out of the gate, it's so much more expansive. It make it, it makes the first season look like a Gentile kitchen drama. Um, so I don't know. That to me gets me really excited because I don't know how you up the scale from that first season uh, because, you know, it, it was an all out Western. Uh, but um, we will be keeping our eye on Westworld as as that is coming out as you know slash film loves to try to solve the mysteries and we'll, we'll be talking about it on this podcast I'm sure in spoiler segments in the future. You know what? Before we go, should mention that uh, you know a little while ago I think Ben talked about going to Mexico to visit some of uh, the inspirations of Coco. He has edited together a video of his trip, which you can find on slash film. I'll link it in the show notes. It is well put together, worth your time. Check it out uh, if you want to see what Ben was up to in Mexico. Uh, check out that uh, video. Uh, Brad, where can people find more of your work online? Slashfilm.com. Also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And check out my podcast, Go Flicks Yourself. It's on iTunes. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me at SlashFilm.com. You can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. Chris, where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can find it at SlashFilm.com. I'm also on Twitter at CEvangelista413. Uh, you can find more of all the stories we mentioned today on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every day on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. I hear we're now on Spotify. Uh, and, uh, yes, yeah, so you can get us there. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, feedback, send it to peter at slashfilm.com. Uh, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends. And we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>